Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. 21 years ago, John Judas and Rui Teixeira wrote a book that defined a political era. In The Emerging Democratic Majority, Judas and Teixeira argued that America's demographic destiny belonged to the Democrats. A left-of-center coalition of minorities, young people, women, and knowledge economy professionals was going to allow the Dems to break through the political stalemate that defined the early 2000s and perhaps even create an FDR-style realignment. Two years after the book's publication in 2004, Barack Obama was elected to the Senate from Illinois, and he seemed to be the perfect avatar for this new Democratic majority. In 2008, Obama put together the very coalition that Judas and Teixeira described in their book, and he won the White House. Democratic strategists pointed to the Judas-Teixeira theory and confidently predicted that their party now had a lock on the Electoral College. Then, Donald Trump came along and picked the lock. Now, Judas and Teixeira are back with their explanation about what happened. And their new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone?, is not likely to be embraced so warmly by the party that they both say they want to succeed. Democrats, they write, need to look in the mirror and examine the extent to which their own failures contributed to the rise of the most toxic tendencies on the right. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. John Judas. You know, I, I voted for Bernie, but I recognize that he would have been a disaster. And Rui Teixeira. But, you know, Biden is not the party. The party is a much broader entity. Have been important intellectuals in many of the left's prestige institutions. The New Republic, the Center for American Progress, and the Brookings Institution, just to name a few. But in Where Have All the Democrats Gone?, they point to two culprits that, despite the electoral successes of the Biden era, they believe are crippling the Democrats' long-term potential. One is pro-Wall Street, pro-Silicon Valley economic policies embraced by Bill Clinton, Obama, and other party elites for decades. And two is what they call the cultural radicalism of the modern progressive movement, which they dub the shadow party, and that they argue is alienating working-class voters on four key issues. Race, immigration, transgender rights, and climate. In perhaps the most controversial chapters of the book, they argue that on those four issues, Democrats should be occupying a middle ground somewhere between Trump and the far left, but instead have been pushed to the extremes by the activists of the so-called shadow party. Teixeira's personal political journey and his alienation from the modern progressive movement since he co-wrote The Emerging Democratic Majority is evidenced by the location of our interview, a conference room at the American Enterprise Institute, where he now works. This is a book that reads like worthy but innocuous political history in its early chapters, 
but by the end is pouring gasoline on the ideological fires that have been burning among progressives and moderates ever since the 2016 Democratic primaries. And it is now causing a firestorm of debate and criticism among politicians, pundits, strategists, and thinkers on the left. So, where have all the Democrats gone? Let's start with um, very briefly with the emerging Democratic majority, um, which the two of you will forever be famous for. No matter what else you do, you'll be you'll be well known for that. Which came out in 2002. two thousand two 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 thousand two written in two thousand one in the fall. All right, so <laughs> during nine eleven, you, you quote <laughs> someone calling you guys Sears in in your in your more recent book, and you 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 you. You did um, predict the what came to be called the Obama coalition, and there's an interesting part in in this book where you you note that as the two of you were rethinking the theory of the emerging Democratic majority, there were all these other progressives doubling down on it. Yes. Um, tell me about that moment when the two of you were starting to rethink that, and others were saying. Oh, it's the emerging Democratic majority. We're fine. We've got this coalition that is unstoppable. Oh, well, that was really, I think that was 2014 in particular after that election. So it was the post-Obama era because the, the, the thesis survives through the Obama era pretty... Well, we, we had doubts in 2010 after that election, but, but uh, those... Um, theories about the ascendant, uh, new, rising American majority really come to the fore, I think about 2014. I was in, in 2015, I was doing a story on that uh, Democratic Al- Democracy Alliance, the big funders thing, and that was central to their thinking. Uh, so that's where I really ran across this full bore. Rui was at the Center for American Progress, so he was also in the belly of the beast, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, yeah, 2010, uh, you know, definitely is when we start to see the cracks um, because actually even in 10 through 2008, I noticed that even though Obama had done relatively well among white working class voters, no one is paying the slightest attention to that. It was more about you know, the minorities, the college educated, it was sort of the rising American electorate, what came to be called the coalition of the ascendant. But 2010, it crashes and burns. Democrats lose 63 seats. They uh, crash in the Midwest, particularly among white working class voters, but a lot of places around the country. Um, 2012, Obama manages to get a second term. Uh, And importantly, and completely ignored again, it's a lot because he manages to bring back a lot of these white working class voters from 2010 in the upper Midwest, uh, running on a more populist campaign, uh, using the auto bailout against Mitt Romney and so on. It's really after 2012 that the whole rising American electorate coalition of the ascendant you know, becomes a catechism in democratic circles. It, it even survives 2014 when the Democrats have another bad midterm and it obviously survives into 2016 with the campaign of Hillary Clinton and how she was thinking and her campaign team were thinking about the electorate and about the election and about the role of the white working class, which they did not expect to be a big problem, which of course turned out to be completely wrong. Uh, and then after 2016, despite you know this, this, this shock to the system of the rising American electorate, bizarrely again, 
this gets summed up as well. You know, all the people who didn't vote for us are just racist and xenophobes. And what can we do about that? We have to double down on the coalition of the ascendant and the rising American electorate. Uh, so I think we didn't know, have enough votes in, in Milwaukee and Detroit. And, you know, if we did that, we would have. Right. Uh, we would have changed of, the election. It's a matter of the, turning out our people. This is the democratic people. analysis of which yeah. election? This may be getting ahead of things, but how much was one? How much was one related to the other? If you if the Democratic Party is going to become higher income and more professional class, is it by necessity going to be a more uncomfortable coalition with the with the uh, white working class? Although we'll get to the fact that you guys point out in the book that it's no longer correct to just say white working class. It's a working class that the Democrats are losing. But anyway, should we have predicted that, that there would be tension and that the coalitions would, would shift uh, the way that they have? Well, I think we should have predicted that, uh, you know, the potential was there, right? Um, the interests, uh, cultural and economic, of working class uh, voters, as opposed to college educated voters, particularly in these Ideopolis, as we talked about, they aren't necessarily that's, that's, the same. I wanted to remind people that you had a word for these uh, places like the research drive <laughs> we, we in North Carolina. On, but, I right. thought it was great. And yeah, then, yeah. But, but then I noticed in the new book, you used some other guys. Yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> so, uh, but you know, I think the divide really opens up in, in the, you know, in the late 20th century. We talk about that a lot in the first part of our book about the great divide, how uh, the Democrats gradually lose the faith of a lot of working class, especially white working class voters on economic issues. They uh, are all for free trade. They kind of embrace a soft neoliberalism. Clinton does the financial deregulation and the labor movement precipitously declines in this period, which sort of eliminates or vastly weakens the working class anchor of the party, both economically and culturally. And then you get into the 21st century, that really doesn't change that economic orientation, and it gets reinforced by uh, the cultural distance that that kind of starts really, uh, you know, sort of getting wider and wider between working class voters and college educated voters, particularly the liberal college educated voters who had streamed into the Democratic Party and dominated, which I think is a very important uh, thing we emphasized in the book, the shadow party. Yes. Of the Democrats. Let's define the shadow party. The shadow party is this, this conversation. sort of penumbra of uh, nonprofits, advocacy groups, media companies, uh, foundations, a good, you know, huge chunk of academia, intellectuals. There's a whole like vast array of these groups uh, that are significantly supported by donations from the rich and from now you see it from small donors. Um, and they uh, have a huge role in defining what the party stands for, what its priorities are, what it pushes, what is branded, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it, that all that pushes the Democrats away from a cultural outlook and an economic orientation that is mostly about working, you know, aspiring working and middle class people. The priorities of these voters and their and their supportive shadow party is just pretty different. Uh, and Democrats. Uh, it's sort of like it. they weren't even aware it was happening when it was happening. And by the time you reach the politics of today, uh, no one can, it's like nobody can think outside of that structure. I mean, it, it this is our party. This is what we have. We have to stick with this. We have to stick with our, you know, orientation on all these issues. Otherwise, you know, these liberal college educated people at the big cities will desert us and that would be a tragedy. Yeah, no, I was going to say it, it really burst into the open in 2016 in that election. 
And it, it, w- what you have there most clearly is the economic differences underpin a huge cultural differences. If you go to, again, mid-sized towns, small town like Mansfield, Ohio, where Sherrod Brown was born, uh, those are towns where the, a lot of the factories have closed, uh, the neighborhoods no longer exist. And in a sense, the people there are thrown back upon the verities, nation, family, guns to protect the home, faith. Uh, if you go to a big city and you, you find people, when I, when I first moved to Washington, uh, I used to count uh, how long it would take me for one of these big shots to tell me what college he went to. <laughs> And if it wasn't, and if you also went to a prep school, you'd also learn that too. Yeah. They, they have a multiplicity of identities, live many places, cosmopolitan, um, you know, belongs to a firm. Used to be, you know, in Mansfield, Ohio, you work for the same company and your chick kids were going to no longer. So I, I, you have this enormous cultural difference. And it, it, it's, it happens in Europe too, the same thing. Brexit vote was the same pattern that is underpinned by these econ- by these economic differences. All right, well, a lot to unpack here with the with the shadow party and the, these these cultural changes. I, I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around with that is, in your experience, and really, you you know, you were in a sense uh, you were at the Center for American Progress, which you identify in the the, the two of you identify in the book as part of the shadow party. Mm-hmm. You talk about some of the media organs mm-hmm. of the shadow party. You say the New York Times and Vox, the, the sort of liberal media establishment, um, the think tanks, the the the, the donor networks mm-hmm. um, like uh, NARAL and Emily's List and the Democracy Alliance. Um, a lot of our, the ACLU. So all of these yeah. institutions that our, mm-hmm. our listeners will be very familiar with. Um, a lot of it reminds me of what you know when we talk about primaries, the invisible primary. It's it's the it's the right. gr- it's the groups that kind of um, whittle the the field in the in, in the early running, and that's you know that's existed for a long time. But do you all think that in the last two to three decades that um, this, the Democratic Shadow Party has one grown much much larger uh, and two much much more influential? Is it in other words? Is it how new is it? Um, it's the social media, that's the key. I mean, you you, you used to be able to de- define a, a, a political party by its kind of governing coalition, and you know the joke used to be it was all the East, Eastern Seaboard people, and they were interchangeable in terms of cabinets. Council on Foreign Relations, again, AFL CIO was important. Uh, what what you start to get in the two thousands. Uh, because of uh, social media, it's just this proliferation of uh, groups uh, that have a very wide influence. And uh, the party themselves becomes defined by them. I mean, I use a silly example. Uh, in 1980, Ronald Reagan, you know, was uh, elected by partly by moral majority and um, Right, religious right. Right, which, which that's so part the of the Republican he, shadow party. Right, right. Exactly. The way, yeah, but there wasn't a shadow party then in the same sense because he could deal with them by appointing somebody from the religious right to be a deputy assistant secretary of education and nobody would have heard of him except for, you know, Jerry Falwell would know and be very grateful. Yeah. And Reagan wouldn't necessarily go to the anti-abortion rallies. So the part, he didn't become identified 
nationally with that cause. Yeah. Um, Biden uh, appoints what Rachel Levine, a trans person, to what assistant secretary of uh, HHS health, of HHS, yeah. all over the internet. Right. Big issue. Right. It's just. Uh, becomes an again, issue in Congress. It becomes an oversight yes, it, issue. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the party becomes identified with them and Republicans run ads and look at this person who's a big shot. So it's, uh, again, I think social media changes it a lot and it encourages the extremes in each party because the groups themselves that make up the, uh, the, the shadow party aren't necessarily interested in making up political majorities. They're interested in their donors. They're interested in this activist base that they want to stir up. So they're they're well, and well, policy at the end of the day, right? And even even you know even in newspapers now aren't dependent upon ads but on subscribers. So they have to you know they have to have to have to think about what their subscribers care about. So again, you have this shadow party, which the Democrats become, and the Republicans on their side also become identified with, that doesn't necessarily conducive to building majorities. Well, yeah. And I think the, um, another important aspect of this is, you know, because of the way the shadow party evolves, because of the role of social media and other things John's mentioning, the shadow party not only becomes larger and more influential, it becomes more unified. I mean, all of their positions on all of the issues are the same. Everybody's got the same position on trans, you know, so-called trans rights or trans issues. They got the same position on immigration, the same position on race, the same position on, on crime and how, you know, we shouldn't be law and order. Instead, we should really be mostly concerned with do no harm and, you know, sort of making sure there's a disparate impact from the influence of laws. Coordinating? They're, they're not exactly, no, they're just, they live in the same bubble okay. and, and they're influenced by each other. And the people who come in and run these organizations and staff them all have the same points of view. So there's real constraint between and among these positions, among people in the shadow party. So if, you know, the ACLU famously becomes much more than just the civil liberties or Planned Parenthood says to fund the police. Um, there are so many Sierra examples Club of it. Sierra Club says we must we must fight white supremacy. And the language so, too, yeah. Latinx, the same uh, language, the same points of view. Of he or she, and and if you don't use those terms, uh, you're you get you get you're in trouble. Yeah. So the shadow yeah. party is a bubble, and this and, and that yeah. bubble determines a lot of the influence, and as heavily influences the view people have uh, about the Democratic Party and the language they use and the issues they care about. And I think that's a makes a huge difference. And it's hard for someone like Biden, who I think of as sort of the designated normie of the Democratic Party, to dissociate himself from it. He may get up there and say in a State of the Union address to fund the, fund the police, fund the police, fund the police. But that does not get rid of the shadow party. That doesn't get rid of his influence. That doesn't get rid of, you know, the whole constellation of influences that come to bear between the media uh, and a variety of other places that sort of push a certain line. Uh, he can't stop that. And that's part of the problem. I want you to define the Fox News fallacy, which is related to the to what we're talking about here. And I just want you to sort of address that in this part of the conversation, um, because one of the points you make about that is that the extremism of the right, and maybe that's the wrong word, but there's something going on on the on the right that has um, blinded uh, d Democrats to some of the their own internal. Uh, issues. Um, and 
related to that is the is if they see something on Fox News, then you automatically have to take the the, the opposite view. Just unpack that the, the Fox right, News. Right. Okay. Fallacy. That was a that was a locution I came up with the Fox News fallacy. The basic concept is pretty simple. Uh, the demo, typical re, you know, reaction of democratic activists, intellectuals, people in, you know, commenters on social media, whatever, who are democratic oriented. Um, if something is said that criticizes the Democrats, uh, you know, on Fox News or the Washington Free Beacon or by some conservative, it's automatically wrong. And the job of Democrats is to deny there's anything to it. And in fact, not only to deny there's anything to it, but to accuse anyone who would say anything similar as giving into racism, giving into xenophobia, giving into Trumpism. It's all made up by Fox News. And, you know, people are being panicked by what they see in the media. This is not a, this is not a big deal. No real voters care about this, but that's completely wrong. Real voters do care about this. And they do have questions about the Democrats, and they do want public safety. I mean, you know, look at the fund, the police, and how it, you know, sort of took over briefly the, uh, you know, the liberal discourse on crime uh, and race. I mean, the last people who wanted to see defund the police were black voters who lived in poor areas. They wanted more police. Their priority was public safety. Defunding a police was a crackpot idea. Um, and so you see this over and over again. Um, abolish ICE and, you know, sort of decriminalize illegal immigration. These are terrible ideas. Voters really are concerned about them. They really don't want an open border. And when Fox News says the same thing, or the Washington Free Beacon says the same thing, or the conservative bet noir of your choice says the same thing, they're talking about a real issue that real voters care about. And you're not going to uh, persuade anybody uh, against that point of view if you simply act like the problem doesn't exist. And this is all made up by the, 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 the satanic, anti-democratic, quasi-fascist people on the other side. I, I mean, it even affects very sophisticated analyses. I mean, I, I deal a lot with the issue of immigration over the last, what, 10 years, 15 years, or a lot about it. And we even got this criticism already in a review of the book where somebody says that, uh, uh, accuses us of, um, of, of uh, wanting to restrict immigration when what we want to do is restrict unskilled and semi-skilled workers who have been competing with the workers who are already here. Well, and also the fact that immigration is now largely on the left viewed through the prism of race and, um, for lack of a better word, uh, wokeness. So your position on immigration is much less defined by the kind of economic, your economic view of the world, but um, rather, do you are you sympathetic to right. th this 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 class of people? This this class of people. Am I? Am I yeah. Wrong if you want that? border security, yeah. it's because you don't like brown people. You you, you don't like the idea <laughs> more succinct than I just said. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't like but, the idea that America is becoming a glorious multiracial, multicultural society. You just want to preserve your your white privilege and white status. And that the only reason why you might object to like having a porous border and having people pour across it. Of course, that's completely, completely wrong. And a great example of the Fox News fallacy, as I was saying, people are concerned about this. Look at the whole. Yeah, I think it is connected to the issue of race. Look at the whole vogue for characterizing the United States as a white supremacist society shot through a structural racism, born in slavery, marinated in racism forever. Now, if you object to that, in democratic circles, 
Uh, this is particularly uh, kind of crested with the George Floyd summer, but it's still with us today. You're, I mean, the whole idea that we should be a colorblind society, that we should be all about equal opportunity, that's, that's quasi-racism. But, you know, to simply raise reasonable questions about whether this is the correct view of the United States uh, will get you in a lot of hot water in a lot of places. And I especially include the left institutional world of which I used to be a part. Let's just quickly talk a little bit about the economic piece of this as well. Yeah. You do a good job in the book of running through the you know neoliberal project of uh, democratic presidencies from Carter uh, through o o Obama, um, and which which a lot of it is about financial financial deregulation and the related issue of uh, engagement with, uh, with with China. Um, of all of the kind of, you know, neoliberal Bob Rubin view of the world policies that, that, that democratic presidents, uh, pursued in those, uh, one, two, three, three presidencies. And then we'll talk about Biden separately. Mm -hmm. What's, what are the, what are the, what are the, um, most economically catastrophic from your perspective for the working class? Well, I would say, uh, NAFTA. The terms on which we got China to be part of the WTO, which we were always, it had to be unanimous. So we, we played the key role there in defining, uh, their, their entry. Right. If we didn't oppose to the it, conditions. it wouldn't happen. Yeah. Uh, I'd say that those were uh, critical. Uh, I'd also say the, um, immigration again, not being, uh, cognizant of what this was going to do, uh, among other things to, um, uh, Black Americans who had only a high school education, who after 1965 suddenly found themselves in a position where they could protest against discrimination, but where they also found themselves competing for jobs with uh, immigrants. And that was a, I think that's a key uh, a factor that people, a lot of people just don't recognize. Um, and the third thing I'd say- In other words, an economic argument about- uh, well, maybe I'll ask this in a yeah. different way when you finish your question. Finish no, the third statement. thing I'd say is, is something that you could describe as uh, welfareism in terms of the policies. Uh, adopting policies that are uh, have the result of making the middle class pay for the working or lower classes uh, for programs, but not themselves receiving any benefit for them. Uh, in contrast to, let's say, Social Security or Medicare, Medicare, again, a program that the labor movement was absolutely crucial in, get, in getting, uh, getting adopted. Um, Obamacare, why was it so unpopular? Well, it turned out that if you made, let's say, $60,000 more a year, your premiums went up. If you made less than that, they were subsidized. So, you know, the Obama wonks could argue, well, they, your premium's going up less than it might have otherwise. But for a lot of people, and they were in a position where they were going to have to pay for the other people. Yeah. I think that's a, another reason why Medicaid, a lot of some of those states didn't uh, uh, take Medicaid. I mean, they saw, again, the program as their, their constituencies saw it as welfareism. And it's not, can't reduce it to racism. It was just 
you know, we're paying for other other people. And that's the form that uh, that a lot of democratic legislation starts to take in the 60s. And that's the form it takes in the 90s, the earned income tax credit, all these kinds of things. Uh, so so um, that's a problem for Democrats. The accession of China to the WTO really, really is key. Uh, you know, what, it, what that does to yeah. a lot of places around yeah. the country, particularly in the Midwest and, you know, the industrialization that, that results from it. Uh, there's actually very good studies that have been done by David Otter et al., economist David Otter, that basically shows this incredibly strong relationship between where the China shock hit and movements toward the Republicans uh, in those particular geographical areas. So, I mean, that, that's very obvious and very key to how, uh, Trump is able to run in 2016 and Democrats lose uh, the, the faith in their economic program among a lot of these voters. Another thing, though, that's worth mentioning is financial deregulation. I think that the movement toward dereg and, and the Clinton administration and the sort of the Rubenomics um, wasn't particularly popular at the time, uh, but it, and it identified the Democrats with the views and priorities and the economics of that sector. And obviously that comes home to bite in 2008, 2009 with the Great Recession. And, you know, the Democrats just are not in a good position to recover faith in their economic model when they have, in a sense, helped along this catastrophic economic problem. And then, of course, you had this very slow recovery from it. Um, and then they it, don't do anything about the bankers. Yeah, I mean, they don't do anything indicted. about the bankers. That was so underestimated at the time. Yeah. You know, Rubin and Geithner says, we, we can't, we can't touch these people. And, you know, normie voters, working class voters, what? These people just totally screwed us. They crashed the economy and you're not going to do anything to them. I think that was that was a real cut point in a way. The two threads that you're, you're tracing here are the what you call later in the book, the cultural radicalism of right. the Democrats and the the um, and the economic piece of this. You, you point out that Clinton Clinton and uh, Democrats, when they actually governed, they um, were highly influenced by Wall Street and, and Silicon Valley, right. and that's the problem mm -hmm. with the economic project. There's a stat in there that I that um, you say that since 2012, Dems lost Democrats lost 25 points among non-white working class. In other words, the erosion in the working in the white working class becomes uh, uh, gradually is is becoming. Um, no longer uh, uh, segmented racially the, the the way it used to, um, but is that are those the two are those the two big threads that lead to this decline? It but here's the connection. I mean, this is why the I, I think that in our book we we make so much in the beginning of the '70s and '80s yeah. and the decline of the labor movement as a central factor in democratic politics, because by the 90s, what you get is a governing coalition of the Democratic Party that's on the one hand, uh, democratic business interests, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, uh, and on the other hand, the uh, groups that come out of the 60s, feminist, civil rights, environmental. And so you get this kind of progressive neoliberalism the term that the philosopher Nancy Fraser uses that I think fits it, um, that dominates the party. So, and so you get economics that really does it, that really misses out 
on this old working class base, and you get cultural politics that appeal primarily, again, to college-educated voters within these post-industrial metropolitan city, uh, cities and in college towns. And, and it really, again, crystallizes in 2016, I think, that, that election, because Trump you know, for all the complaints about how stupid he is, uh, got it. I mean, he understood that. He went right at both those things. Well, yeah, and you're, I know yeah. you want to jump in here, but your mm -hmm. account of the Trump campaign and your analysis of it was, I found very interesting, a couple of points that I want you guys to respond to. One is you cited a statistic that 70% of Trump's ads were about policy, and that was more than Hillary Rodham Clinton's. I think if anyone, if you asked anyone who had, one candidate's ads were 70% about policy. Which one was it? They would all have guessed right, Hillary. Yeah. Well, but, yeah, Hillary had lots of plans, you know. I mean, before Elizabeth Warren was talking about, I have a plan for that. Hillary had a plan for that. She had an elaborate policy program that, you know, the working class people should have realized was in their interest. But what did she run on? I mean, what, what is the contact people had with the campaign through ads and stuff like that? It was all about how bad Donald Trump was, what a bad person he was, how sexist he was, how racist he was, how we're all in this together against the bad orange man. That was the nature of the advertising, like 80, 90 percent. Whereas Trump, you know, you may not he may not have run on a specific detailed policy program about trade, about runaway shops, about immigration. I think that's an understatement. <laughs> but he talked about it all the time. He talked about how the elites were betraying you. He talked about, you know, bad trade deals. He talked about how, you know, we're going to fix everything and here's how we're going to do it in very broad terms. Um, he talked about issues. You may not have liked how he talked about issues and it may not have been very specific, but he talked about issues. Whereas Hillary talked about bad orange man. And I think the, the other aspect was the identity politics that from... Hillary Clinton's uh, side. I mean, it was striking that Obama did not run as a black candidate, and he really steered away from that. He very much had the. Uh, he very much understood the lessons of the uh, New Democrats in terms of social policy. Hillary Clinton, you know, burst through the glass ceiling in her convention. I'm with her. With the, I mean, the whole idea that vote for me because I'm a woman. And uh, I think, again, that was another aspect of missing the boat and not, not appealing to what voters really cared about. I mean, another wrinkle of this is, yeah. um, you know, how the primary campaign went in 2016 between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. She was really under threat or felt under threat from Bernie Sanders. And one, one way she responded to that in his class-oriented appeal and against the billionaire class and the banks you know, she started this call and response thing in a lot of her rallies, which is like, if we got rid, you know, broke up the big banks, would that get rid of racism? No. If we broke up the big banks, would that get rid of sexism? No. If we got broke up the big banks, would that, you know, pres you know preserve LGBTQ rights? No. So, you know, this was like her shtick. And you know, it's pure identity too, she, politics. She huh? used to attack him for uh, being against the 2008 uh, immigration reform, and he was against it. Because of the H, uh, A, there are H two Bs and one Bs, but they all ended up to replacing people at Disneyland, you know, or the workers had to uh, uh, train the people. I mean, he—that's what he was against. But he—that's what she was attacking. But that, yeah, and that call and response that Rui just mentioned is sort of pure distillation of the difference between those campaigns. Yeah, one's about identity politics, and one's you know, a cl more a classic. Uh, ec economics about economics and class. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. if there's one, I mean, if there's one thing that you know, one big takeaway from the book, it's 
Democrats focus on class, not race. Would you agree with that? They, 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 should. they should. Yeah, you should. Yes. Yeah, I don't mean, I'm sorry. This is a command. This is a, said as a commandment from the two of you. Right, yeah. right. Yes, that's the, that's the commandment. Well, I guess our basic, you know, shtick, and we talk about this in the, at the end of the book, um, is Democrats have done best as a, as, a, as a party, as a potential dominant electoral coalition when they've been the party of the common man and woman, of the ordinary American, of the forgotten American. And that identity as being the party that represents those kind of people in our country, uh, you know, was, was so key to Democrats' success when, when they've done the best. And that's really, to a large extent, what, what's been lost. And you can see that in the survey data and so on, which party is for the common man or woman. It's really changed over time. And, you know, obviously, when Democrats are slicing and dicing the electorate into a variety of different intersectional buckets, and talking about equity instead of equal equal opportunity, and you know, saying this is a country where you know all black and brown people are oppressed. I mean, this is and you know, this is not designed to unify the common man and woman behind the project of the Democratic Party. It's something very different. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Now we need to talk about the problematic case of Joe Biden and his successes. Mm -hmm. I think you deal with this in a nuanced way in the book, but he seems to be a living rebuke to some of what you're arguing. What is wrong with uniting a, a coalition around the fact, uh, to use your phrase, orange man bad? <laughs> Because a lot of people think orange man bad. Uh -huh. okay. So what's wrong with keeping this anti-Trump coalition uh, together from 2018 uh, till till just the elections uh, the, the other day? The, and so yeah, that seems to me disclaimer. Really. No, no. Yeah, I, time I, for the disclaimer. I, I want to, you know, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to you know, I want to exaggerate the, the, no. a little bit here to, to, to just provoke you, but. Um, it seems like Democrats are doing okay with the running against what they see as, as a threat to the country's foundations and all this other stuff that you guys are talking about in the post-Trump era. We can deal with the nuances of trans rights and climate and immigration and race, which are the four biggies you guys talk about as, at the end of the book of mm -hmm. what, are, what are holding Democrats back. And a lot of people say, well, one, they're not holding Democrats back. They're doing great. Mm -hmm. And- um, this coalition to get past the Trump era, um, whatever's happening underneath in, in these online debates between in the, in the shadow party, yeah, we'll deal with that. Democrats can deal with that later. For, for now, um, what's important is orange man bad and get past the national emergency. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's the disclaimer. <laughs> we are not the uh, po political consultants. It may well Fair. be that the Democrats' best shot in 2024 
is Orange Man bad. <laughs> and Orange Man has gotten a lot worse uh, since uh, tw 2020. He's gotten nuttier and nuttier. But I think, uh, again, our basic argument is that as long as you have these parties that are roughly equal electorally and that have to make their appeal on, on the different parties' extremes... Uh, you have a situation in the country of continued stalemate in Washington and an inability to deal with a lot of the big issues yeah. that the country faces. And so uh, what we were doing is advocating what, what it would take to make a, to create a majority party so we could deal with, uh, you know, I mean, the carried interest. I mean, our tax structure is ridiculous. It still encourages companies to, to uh, go overseas. Um, you know, hedge funds, the whole, uh, uh, the, the whole world of uh, financial speculation, the degree to which that dominates our economy. Uh, so there's so many problems that we have. Obamacare, deeply flawed now still. I mean, we were... My wife and I were trying to get on to Plan D, and you have to have like a business degree now <laughs> to understand some of that stuff. It's just nuts. Right. Um, so anyway, I think that's what that's what we were looking for. But there's no doubt that in 2024, the election is you know part of the Democratic strategy has to be to make uh, Trump look bad. And if they, and if people don't think that about him, he's you know. We'll have another four years. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in addition to Orange Man Bad, let's not forget the other key part of the arsenal, which is abortion rights. Right. Yeah. I mean, which Democrat is not part. I want to ask you, that's not part of your rap sheet of cultural radicalism that the Democrats should stay away from. No, no, no. Abortion right. rights is, is, a, is a great issue for the yeah. Democrats because the radicalism in the Republican Party, big sections of it allows the Democratic Party to, Democrats to present that we're, we're the moderates. You know, we, we right. don't want to take away your freedom. We're for abortion rights. Those other people, they want to ban abortion entirely. And there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who do feel that way. And, you know, if you look at the data on what people feel about abortion rights, um, it's generally the case that they would prefer a moderate course where uh, abortion would be on demand in the first trimester, you know, maybe not in the second trimester, people are very leery, third trimester, definitely not. But uh, the problem is that this election coming up in 2024 is going to be a really different electorate than we've seen in the last several of these off-year cycles, non-presidential year cycles. Democrats have become, in a sense, low turnout election specialists. Their coalition is now such that they have the educated and engaged voters who are going to turn out in these non-presidential years more so than than uh, the Republicans. And all the data we have as we look at forward to 2024, and we look at the voters who didn't show up in 2022, for example, but are going to very likely show up in 2024, um, those are the voters who are most skeptical of Biden, most sympathetic to Trump, most disaffected in general. Uh, and therefore, it may not be that easy to replicate success simply with abortion and democracy as it was in some of these uh, off-year elections. So that's a challenge Democrats have. And you see it in Hispanic voters, you see it in young voters, you see it in working class voters. Those people are gonna surge into the voting pool, are very much not big enthusiasts for Biden and the Democratic Party. And it's gonna make the election in all likelihood quite close and, and they could lose. Um, you know, and, but to underscore John's point, 
even if the Democrats squeak through in the presidential, that's not exactly dominance. That's not exactly the default majority party for America. They're probably going to lose the Senate, right? Because Manchin is, they've already lost the West Virginia seat, essentially. Uh, It's going to be very difficult for them to retain the Senate. Uh, Republicans still dominate state legislatures. They have more governors. They have more trifectas. This is a divided country. If you want to move off the 50-yard line of American politics, Democrats are probably going to have to do something different than orange man, bad, abortion rights. On, on the same subject, just in general, how do you think Biden has navigated the two um, uh, negative trends that you, you, you identify in, in, in both in his, since his 2020 campaign? How has he na- navigated the shadow party's interest in what you guys call cultural radicalism and the kind of, you know, the old neoliberal pro- project that, uh, on, on economics that's dominated uh, Democratic White Houses? Let's go back to the election in 2020, because I think, as Rui put it, he was the normie candidate. I think if you'd gotten any of those other people, the Democrats would have been in big trouble. But he was a kind of blank slate candidate that uh, Trump couldn't uh, pin any of the uh, big issues on. I mean, you know, I, I voted for Bernie, but I recognize that he would have been a disaster because, uh, <laughs> you, you know, on the one hand, you know, you'd have socialism and then you'd have raising taxes to pay for um, Medicare for all. So uh, and Biden made a point in his campaign about uh, uh, steering away from defund the police. He talked about funding the police. He talked about the United States of America. I mean, that was his theme. He would always say and uh, so he steered away from multicultural kind of appeals, uh, and uh, the election became about Trump, and that's that's what you know. That's yeah. why he succeeded. Otherwise, uh, not <laughs> Bernie, Bernie, or some of the other Elizabeth Warren or one of the Pete Buttigieg. You think they wouldn't have had the, the same yeah? They would have had a lot of kind problems. Yes, and as and, pre- yeah, and as a president. Um, you know, I, th- I think he's made an effort and uh, his accomplishments the first two years, I thought, were uh, miraculous given that it was a 50-50 uh, Senate and uh, he got three big bills through. But uh, in terms of the election in 2024, they're really going to be overshadowed by inflation and by his age, most of the accomplishments of those bills also won't come a cropper until what twenty twenty eight the infrastructure thing. I mean, for right. instance. But yeah, he, it's that, very commendable that, uh, in my view, that Biden and the Democrats have broken from the basic neoliberal model that Democrats had, in one form or another, been endorsing or promoting for decades. You know, obviously they're willing to do something that looks like industrial policy. They're willing to not turn a lot of things over to the market that were previously uh, thought that's realistic economics. So, and uh, you know, as John pointed out, the, the pure legislative achievement of getting all those bills through is pretty remarkable. Um, but the problem is that, as John also points out, this is going to take quite a while to uh, have its effects, if indeed it has the desirable effects they want. I think there are good reasons to doubt that the bets on renewables and electric vehicles are really going to pay off. But, you know, how are they going to correct that or move farther in the direction they'd like to do? 
once they lose the Senate, once they, you know, if they right. lose the presidency, obviously that's a big problem. And in general, they don't have the political dominance they need to over time shift the American economic model towards something that is more beneficial to the broad numbers of working class people about with, with among whom they're still suffering greatly in terms of electoral support. This should be a multi-year project. The idea that you could solve the problems of the American economy that have been building for 40 years in two years is completely ridiculous. Uh, and Democrats really should have been playing for the long haul. In terms of uh, cultural radicalism stuff, I think Biden has made some efforts to dissociate himself from the craziest stuff. But, you know, Biden is not the party and he has no control really over how people present themselves in, in various states and by various legislators on a lot of these issues. And the Democratic image or brand, if you will, on a lot of these issues is still way to the left of the median voters, particularly the median working class voter. And Biden is not going to try to change that. Maybe Biden could change that by, you know, sort of a sister soldier moment where he calls out the crazy radicals in his own party on an issue or set of issues and by name dissociates himself from, from some, of, you, some of the nuttery. Well, I always liked the idea of a, a Chesa Boudin moment, but that, that's kind of past. But when he got kicked out of being the DA in San Francisco, that was a great opportunity to say, this man does not represent what our party is about. Well, he He's, did it with the DC uh, bill. Well, that, that was a bill, though. It wasn't yeah. a person. Yeah. But I agree that was, uh, yeah. again, nobody knows about that and they never talk about it. I mean, one of the things about things that Biden does that break a little bit from that culturally radical consensus is he, you know, he doesn't really talk about it. like the Willow Project in Alaska. You know, I was forced into that. I really didn't want to do it. But, you know, one of the great achievements of administration is they've, they've um, allowed more oil and gas permits than any previous administration. And that's a lot of the reason why I entered the energy situation hasn't gotten as dire as that. And people are very supportive of this, but they never talk about it because they're worried if they do, the shadow party will come down and like a, like a ton of bricks. Uh, you know, he, he did this thing recently where we're going to allow a certain portion of the wall to be built between U.S. and Mexico. But the immediate take on that was, well, you know, they forced me to do it. They put a gun to my head. It's in the law. And you know, they're not going to talk about that. They're not going to talk about border security. So um, in a way, I... There's opportunity coming up with this bill because the only way to get the foreign aid, the only way to right. get Ukraine and Israel right. aid, it looks like, is going to be a deal on immigration. That'll so, be very so interesting. From your point of view, that would, this would be an opportunity. I do it, right. but you know, I'm I'm just a pointy-headed intellectual. So what? <laughs> don't listen to me. Anyway, I got to go. John Rui, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having us, Ryan. Yeah, right. yeah it was fun. At this time, Rui had to leave for another podcast, but John is an old friend, and we kept talking. Yeah. So John. In the end of the book, probably the most controversial part of the book is where you're going through a list of four issues that the shadow party, the shadow Democratic right. Party cares a lot about. And oh, I'm not going to go into detail on each of them. I, they're controversial issues. I think you deal with all of them in a nuanced way, but certainly you will be um, criticized by your friends on the left for saying that Democrats should downplay, well, one, for calling the sort of progressive consensus on these issues radical, and uh, for suggesting in any way that Democrats shouldn't lead with uh, their current views on race, immigration, trans rights, and probably the most controversial one, to me at least, that didn't uh, seem like it necessarily belonged on this list was climate. Didn't seem like that one went with the other one in some way from from my perspective. You think, this is a quote from the book, that 
climate activism has turned into a quote millenarian quasi-religious commitment to rapidly zeroing out fossil fuels. Why do you think that um, the sort of mainstream progressive view on the climate emergency is a huge anchor weighing down Democrats? Well, politically it is. Politically. That's yeah. e that's a, an easier case to make. I mean, you know, I used to say that, uh, I, I used to hear that uh, West Virginia went, um, which used to be the most democratic uh, state, went for Mondale in 84, uh, went uh, Republican was because they were all, uh, you know, whatever, racist, misogynist, but it was climate. And it was Al Gore, and it was the threat to the mining industry and coal mining. And they're, lo you know, they're losing coal miners, but it's still a big part of the state budget. And uh, it's again, it's part of West, what West Virginia is known for. And so, add to that Kentucky, um, Western Pennsylvania. Again, why is uh, why are the Democrats in some trouble in uh, Pennsylvania? North Dakota used to have uh, when I came to Washington two Democratic uh, uh, senators. Now I, I don't think you'd find a Democratic official in the whole whole state. And a lot of that again is oil and gas and and how it's changed the politics of the state. So so uh, in the, in the, all those respects. Um, the Democratic emphasis on climate uh, ha has uh, hurt the party. Texas, again, uh, you know, why is Texas a problem? I, in 2014, it fits two things. I went, I was in San Antonio and um, I interviewed people about the governor's race, which was Wendy Davis versus uh, Abbott. And uh, uh, the Hispanic organizers, Latino organizers, Tejano organizers told me, you know, she's not going to do very well among us. We don't care about abortion rights and stuff like that. And sure enough, uh, that was the first real sign for me because Hispanic men went for Abbott, who was a hardline conservative over her. Now, if you look at 2020, why did a lot of those places go for uh, Trump? Well, you know, there was public safety. It turned out they weren't happy with illegal immigration, Board, a lot of border security people, but also oil and gas and the industry and, and the feeling that a lot of people depended upon that. That helps explain some of the Hispanic turn yeah. towards Trump yes. in Texas. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, politically, it's a big issue. I think what Rui and I think uh, believe is that there's a uh, ap apocalyptic uh sentiment that's wrapped into it that come a lot of it comes out of the young i recognize it from my childhood from the way i used to feel about uh, that nuclear war was going to come all of a sudden and a lot of the estimates well, like the nuclear freeze movement a little bit well that was already 82 this was so uh, when i was a kid we, we were uh, doing air air uh, air safety drills. I mean, we would get under the desk in case, uh, you know, there was uh, a nuclear war. Yeah. yeah. But but I think it's more like that. It's more like the sense that the world is going to end. And the projections that people have made, I think, are just wildly uh, unrealistic. Uh, 2030 uh, uh, in the United States having uh, no, uh, eliminating uh, fossil fuels, uh, 2050 globally, uh, with all these countries uh, industrializing right now, it's just so. I think that there's been, uh, I think that again, there's been an era of you almost call it hysteria around the cli around climate and around climate legislation that has 
in turn led to denial on the other side. I mean, it's a sort of psychological problem where somebody screams enough about you, you're going to die. <laughs> you might think that there's really no problem at all. <laughs> and, and, and so you get on one side, people saying we have to get rid of all fossil fuels by 2030. And, you know, if you look at the science, you have to have fossil fuels uh, in order to have renewables because of the problem of intermittency. So, anyway, so you have that on the one side, and then you have the complete deniers on the other. It's again the Fox News right. fallacy. Because really, what you're arguing for across these four issues is a sort of centrist. What yes. you guys would describe as a sort of centrist view on the the, the four biggies that you think are holding Democrats ba- back: race, immigration, trans rights, and yes. climate. Yes, it, with, with race, an emphasis on ending discrimination. And I'm dealing with, uh, again, both the, uh, the blacks, Hispanics, uh, whites who've been left behind in the society, but doing it again in a, in a kind of quasi universal way, not doing policies that single out, we're going to help, we're just going to help blacks. We're not, we're not going to help people in rural Ohio, uh, or white. We're just going to help people in the west side of Chicago. And, uh, you know, you might, make some kind of moral argument, but politically that's not going to happen. And you, what you're going to end up doing is helping no one. So so uh, on race, your argument politically, the sweet spot is, um, is, econo- is economics essentially. Yeah. And, and, and again, and the, an economics of class. And, you yeah. know, with affirmative action, I have to look this up, but as I remember, Biden uh, was uh, against the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action, which, which if you look me, at yeah. it, yeah, and, and uh, it was very, it's very popular in the country. And the alt- again, the alternative to, to uh, a race-based affirmative action uh, should be a class-based, that if kids uh, face special obstacles getting an education and still excel. In the conclusion of the book, you sum up by saying that Dems should focus on liberal economics and that the reason they don't is twofold. One is that when they're in power, they're heavily influenced by Wall Street and Silicon Valley. And two, the influence of the cultural radicals in the in the shadow party and, and their organizations. Um, and you and Rui argue that they need to be you know, liberal on economics and moderate and conciliatory on cultural issues such as race, immigration, gender, and climate. Um, two questions here. One, if they're not doing this, there's got to be a reason. And I'm skeptical that the only reason is the strength of the interest groups that there's so when you when you look at this coalition that you think is available to Democrats, what would they lose by doing this? That's the first thing I'm, I'm curious about. Or what, what are the arguments that you hear the most about why they don't do this? And then two, do you see any Democrat out there that has this view uh, of the world um, and that Someone, someone who might be the future of the party uh, mm-hmm. rather than the past, and maybe the answer is Joe Biden, because <laughs> I think he does actually in a lot of the ways. In, in a lot of ways, in trying to understand the New Deal majority and why it worked, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith uh, introduced this idea of countervailing power, so that uh, both in the workplace and in Washington, in politics and in the state government as well, 
You had the power of business. That's not going to go away. But you also had uh, the power of labor. You had other things attached to it as well. You had so you know social groups. You had farm workers. But there had to be some kind of countervailing power. We don't have that in the United States anymore. The way that it could be revived is first you have, and the problem is that they're interconnected. It has to happen on the one hand in the workplace and community, and on the other hand in the political party. Now, the the labor movement has argued for years that what they need is some change in the labor law. So uh, companies can't just uh, fire organizers. Uh, so they can't, can't just stall in terms of, uh, ha- uh, after an election in terms of having collective bargaining. One thing that I would prescribe is that when the Democrats do get a cloture proof majority, 60 seats in the Senate and a majority in the House, as they had under Clinton and then Obama, that they reform the labor laws. Now, Obama was being pressured to do that in 2009, and he got a message from three of his billionaire funders, one of whom, Penny Pritzker, became Secretary of Commerce, that he better not do this. And sure enough, it became a, a low priority. He yeah. was for it, but so this is you a, have this to have this. The PRO Act? Yeah. Is that what it's called? The, a wish? The ver- a version of uh, currently, is it called the PRO Act? Yeah, pro yeah. act. But it, there's yeah. been different versions of it. It yeah. goes back to 19, the 1970s to Carter. That was the first big defeat. And the Democrats recognized that then if they didn't do that, it was going to rip the heart out of the party. And you want to have a kind of economic democracy in the country. You have to have the power within the workplace and the power within the political arena. And they go together. So it's going to be very hard to achieve that. Who might represent this version of the Democratic Party? Oh, I think, you know, I think Sherrod Brown understands that stuff really well. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is that uh, within the Republican Party now, there's a, there's a, a, they have their own little shadow party organizations that uh, uh, have recognized that, oh my God, we have all these working class uh, constituents now. Maybe we should do something for them. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Maybe it's not just a matter of uh, of saying that we're against, you know, that we're against abortion or wh- whatever. Well, yeah, it's some of the yeah. stuff that Ross, our, our, our old friends Ross Douthat and uh, Rehan Salam, yes, wrote they, about they started, the, but the now you have, you have American Affairs, a journal, you have American Compass, you have Compact, yeah. a magazine, and and uh, you have these can these you know I'd say Vance. Hawley, Rubio, uh, all have elements of that politics. Now they also have the Trump baggage too, and this you know the stop the steal. But but there well, is the that thing. faction within the Republican. But when Party. you look at what, if you look at any of the reporting on what that world wants to do in twenty twenty five, if Trump wins, frankly, it's not a lot of this. It's a lot of uh, you know, let's get vengeance against the people who. Well, hurt I mean, you don't even Trump. have to look. Trump wins. Yeah. What was the first thing? That the Republican Congress did when right. it came back in 2023. Tax code. It, ta- tax code to, <laughs> yeah. to uh, yeah. you know, favor their rich yeah. donors. Right. They wanted to change it. Because so, the pre-Trump party still yeah. controlled the yeah. legislative so, apparatus. So both parties have that same problem. And there's factions and there's politicians within both parties. 
Uh, right. But by now, the, 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 the Trump, uh, what you're talking about, this sort of group, they should have, you know, worked through some of this, you know, given how long Trump's been on the scene and, and what, and how, what an opening they have with working class voters and how many Republicans like, uh, JD Vance and, um, uh, Marco Rubio and some of these and Josh Hawley now self-identify as you know Republicans who represent working class voters. I mean, they're think going, they'd be a yeah. little further along in, in in working out some ideas. Uh, yeah, but uh, they they still have uh, the evangelicals are a huge base. The Coke network is a huge base. Uh, donor base within the, the holding uh, them back, the libertarians, yes, and the, absolutely, and the religious libertarians. right. So, I mean, you, we could have had the same conversation about the Republicans and their shadow party that oh, we've course. had that we've had about the Democrats. Both parties are uh, basically have these extremes, and then there's this guy Trump, who's a kind of, you know, it's it's very hard to characterize him within the history of American politics. No, no doubt. John, uh, audience should know, one of my oldest friends in, in Washington, someone who I have been reading and in, admiring for decades, more than two decades now. And uh, thank you very much for doing this. It's been great to talk. Great. I enjoyed it. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. Email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 